So, we meet again, Mr. Bond. Bye, get out of my anchor chair. Silence, Octopussy. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Springfield Googleplex, the movie podcast for Simpson fans. Each week, we talk about a movie parodied on The Simpsons. Maybe it was The Simpsons that introduced us to the movie, or maybe when we finally saw it, we realized, hey, that's where the Simpson joke comes from. Regardless, each week we pick one that at least one of us hasn't seen or hasn't seen in a while, watch it, and come together to discuss. I'm your host, Adam Scholes, and joining me as always is the Miss Money Penny to my M, my co-host, Nate Storick. Hi there. Hi, Thanks. buddy. How are you doing? I'm, I'm doing all right today. That's yeah. good. How about the, you? I'm doing okay. The weather's not the greatest this this fine Saturday here in, in Canada. The nice thing about it not being super nice is that I don't feel too badly being in here uh, talking with my my best bud. That's a good point. This week we watched You Only Live Twice. You might remember this movie from such Simpson episodes as Season 8's You Only Move Twice. Nathan, what did you think? Um, it is something. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I feel like, you know, it is, it's kind of all of the excesses of the the Sean Connery Bond movies. Yeah. Uh, it's almost just like a montage of all of the worst the worst parts of the Sean Connery <laughs> Bond movies, the things that you thought were problematic, the things that you thought were ridiculous, uh, just, you know, mashed together into, into a movie. I will say, without getting too far into this, um, it's maybe not the worst Sean Connery movie. That's fair. like it's 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 art. It's certainly the most problematic, but it's not the worst of his tenure. But it's pretty entertaining. It's just it's just that there <laughs> it goes back and forth. Where sometimes yeah. it's entertaining, sometimes it's boring. Sometimes you're just cringing so much that you lose track of the plot. Yeah, it's entertaining, but maybe for not the right reasons. Right, right, right. So in case it's unclear, this week. I was obviously familiar with the film. And Nathan, this was his first time seeing it. So, Nate, as we are wont to do, could you maybe summarize the movie in a sentence? <laughs> wow. So, um, where do I start? Well, so... I think no is also an acceptable answer. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. You know, I think, I think uh, you know, I stick, I stick to my guns here. You know, it is, it is like a, a, a montage of cringy... Sean Connery Bond moments, basically. Yeah. Um, okay. I'll you know, set in Japan. Set in Japan. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I would. I would say that's accurate. So why? Why did you? Why did you subject me to this movie uh, to, for this conversation? Well, I mean, the reality. Is, okay. So obviously, we wanted to talk about James Bond as a whole. There's an episode called "You Only Move Twice." Obviously, the title being a parody of "You Only Live Twice." And this is sort of, as we sort of discovered the more we got into this, the, the episode doesn't really parody the movie all that much. But it, it, we, you know, I didn't want to go with the obvious choice, which was Goldfinger, because obviously we, I'm, I'm assuming we've both seen it. Yeah, yeah, I, I've, I've seen that one. Yeah, okay. And, and so, so basically I wanted to pick something that I knew you hadn't seen and that would facilitate an interesting discussion because I think there is some interesting stuff to discuss even if the film itself is not the strongest. But argu arguably that is, I mean, okay, so you've got 25 James Bond movies to pick from. Do you, What's more interesting? A really, really good one or a really, really bad one? 
And I think that this is a really, arguably a really, really bad one. And it's more fun to talk about that. And, and it, it does. I think you can there you can talk about a lot of interesting parts of how the Bond series has played out over the years through this movie. Right? Absolutely. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. There's lots of tropes, lots of lots of problematic stuff. <laughs> Lots of like fun, goofy stuff too yep. that takes place in here that you can, you know, you can see threads of it throughout, especially the other Connery movies, but then the other, the other ones too. Yeah. So before we get into all that, I let's, I guess we should start at the very beginning. So the film was released on June 12th, 1967 and was directed by Lewis Gilbert and the screenplay was written by, and this is always, every time I see this, it makes me go, what? Uh, as as Mo would say, the screenplay was written by none other than Mr. Roll Dahl, famous for writing William Willie and the Chocolate Willy Wonka and the Cho- Charlie. What is the book called? I always get that because the oh. movie and the book is are two I different think, things. I think the book is Charlie, Charlie and the Chocolate, Chocolate Factory. Factory. Yeah, I, and I think the movie is Willy Wonka. Willy, yeah, I think you're right. Chocolate Factory. One or the other. Willy Wonka and the also, Charlie Factory. Yeah. But also, <laughs> exactly. Also famous for writing Matilda, the big friendly giant amongst the witches, amongst mm-hmm. many other children's books. I'm just going to give a, a brief plot synopsis. This actually comes from, I, you know, I'm, I literally, I think this can now become a write-off. Uh, this, this is the official plot synopsis from the James, the James Bond archives, which is my coffee, my giant coffee table book here produced by Tashin. It weighs about, 15 pounds it's impossible to read because it's so fucking huge <laughs> but uh i did read all about the film to bring you lots of fun trivia so anyway but this is the official synopsis from the book but i typed it out because i didn't want to have to hold that book and read it so here is the official synopsis well i guess it's not really a, i guess this book isn't technically official the tashin synopsis. The, ta- the official tashin synopsis it's licensed to no anyway James Bond is assassinated by Chinese agents in Hong Kong, but it is a ruse so that James Bond can travel incognito to Japan and investigate the hijacking of American and Russian spacecraft. Together with Tiger Tanaka and Aki, no last name, just like Cher, of the Japanese Secret Service, Bond traces a supply of liquid oxygen, which is used to fuel rockets, to a southern Japanese island. And this is where it gets problematic because so that James Bond can live on the island without arousing suspicion, he becomes, quote, Japanese in appearance, (laughs) trains with Tanaka's ninjas, and marries Kissy Suzuki. Bond and Kissy look into the mysterious death of a fishing girl and discover that Spectre, commanded by Ernst Stavro Blofeld, have a secret rocket complex hidden inside a volcano. Bond, Tanaka... Kissy and the ninjas attack the base and stop Blofeld from detonating a nuclear war between Russia and America, but Blofeld escapes at the last minute, leaving the base to self-destruct. That is apparently the plot of the movie. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, that's a very generous synopsis. (laughs) Gotta be honest, didn't get any of that watching it. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I got, I understood, I basically understood Blofeld's plan of like, I'm going to capture these two, these two opposing it's the cold war so i'm gonna capture these two opposing rockets and hopefully force these people into fighting each other that much i understood just about everything else made no sense to me we'll get into it <laughs> i'll be honest also i so i've seen this movie before i'm not a i, I am obviously not a fan of this movie if it's unclear this is i i did write this in my notes blofeld does not show up until the one hour and four minute mark mm. and by that point i had pretty much completely checked out and was not all that interested in continuing yeah. So, um, yeah. 
But yeah, I, I guess to start things off, because we've sort of alluded to this, let's let's sort of like go back in time, do a little contextualization here. And I just want to sort of talk about the Bond franchise in general and sort of our histories with it. So what is your history with James Bond, the franchise? Yeah, so you know, I mean, I'm one of those schmucks that had never really seen a John, uh, a James Bond movie before, you know, the most recent series with uh, Daniel Craig, and so you know, I can remember when the first, I think we probably saw the first Casino Royale, you know, when it came out. I vividly remember the day we went and saw that. Oh, really? Well, oh yes. I mean, I, I mean, I could bore our audience with the story, but. So yeah, that was my that was my first uh, Bond movie um, was Casino Royale. So with with you at, in in theaters, and it's so funny because at the time I don't think <laughs> there was any fanfare around that of like yeah, this is my first Bond movie. But yeah, I had not seen any of the other ones. I feel like uh, you know it's possible. I don't think I ever saw the ones uh, that were coming out when I was a kid, right? Right. In theaters, so you know that would have been Brosnan. I, I knew they were happening. I remember them being kind of in the pop culture thing, but my parents have ne- were not into Bond. My brother wasn't into Bond. My friends at that age, I guess, were not really into Bond. So that was my, my first experience. And then since then, my wife, you know, she grew up watching some of the Bond movies. Right. You know, most, mostly the Connery movies. Yeah. So during the pandemic, we actually went back and, and rewatched most of the Bond movies with the exception of this one, because it's a stinker. So that's that's a little bit about my background. And what about you? Well, so I'm sort of like, I'm the exact opposite. So, so basically, I've been a fan of the James Bond series since I was a little kid. You kind of hit the nail on the head, because I think this is really how everybody kind of comes to the series, is like, you have to have somebody in your circle that is a fan that sort of introduces you to it. And in my case, I remember distinctly what it was, was Goldeneye, the video game for N64. Mm. That comes out. And I think, I'm like, this is such a cool game. Like, I want to play this game. And, I, and like my neighbor, my next door neighbor, who was an adult, like he was at, they were having like an open house and all the neighborhood kids came by and he had an N64 and he's like, kids, like, why don't you go play N64? And he had Goldeneye. And so like, th- I finally got to play this game that I'd seen like the ads for. I'm like, this is, this is the coolest thing ever. And so like, I'm asking my dad, I'm like, what is this like James Bond thing? Because the other thing to keep in mind is that Goldeneye, the game comes out like two years after Goldeneye, the film, which is like one of these weird things of like, everybody assumes that they came out at the same time, but actually they didn't. Right. So my dad is like, oh yeah, James Bond. Like I, he grew up watching them. So he naturally, and this was also in the days of Blockbuster video. So like, he was like, oh yeah, like, well, let's, let's watch them. So we went to Blockbuster and we rented and you when you're starting with James Bond, you start with Goldfinger because that's really, even though that's not the first one, sure. that's the blueprint that sort of set the tone for the series. And basically the, the very concise blueprint that followed for years. And I just like, as a, as a eight or 10 year old or however old I was, like that just blew my mind. Like the gadgets, the, the guns, the, like it was just so cool to me, which is so funny because like looking back on it now, that movie is very slow moving. Yes. It's like kind of boring, but when you're a kid and you don't have any like reference to anything and also too, like this would have been like 19 again, if I'm 10, it would have been like 1998 or so technology is not where it was today. So like the idea of a GPS tracker in your car 
that was that was still in 1998 that was still like mind-blowing right whereas now like unfortunately for james bond the series like your cell phone can basically do everything so any of the gadgets that he has are basically rendered useless because it's like well my iphone can do that (laughs) but to a 10 year old a cool ass car and cool gadgets like he had just like i was i was obsessed so it then became like you know weekly when we would go to blockbuster on friday nights like i would rent another james bond movie and I will say, because it was you're at the mercy of what Blockbuster had, my Blockbuster, for whatever reason, didn't have the entire series. So mm. I actually never saw the whole series growing up. And clearly the nostalgia factor plays a big impact into whether or not I like these movies because the movies I never saw as a kid and saw only for the first time as an adult tend to be the ones I like the least. Right. I, because I don't have that like affinity with them. I sort of just see the flaws or find them really boring or dated or whatever. This being one of them, I never saw <laughs> this until I was an adult and was sort of like horrified when I did. Horrified is maybe a bit strong, but like I just was like, oh, uh, what? Okay, sure. Um, and yeah, so I just, I really... I, I this is not one that I revisit often. And obviously I'm very excited to introduce my son to them eventually when he's mm-hmm. old enough. He's definitely not old enough. Although we did watch I did watch Dr. No when he was like two or three months old. So he has technically seen a James Bond movie with me. That was so Dr. No was the favorite in in my wife's household. Which see, that's interesting to me because like granted, it's the first one, but yeah. it's lacking a lot of the elements of a james bond movie well so the interesting part is it wasn't a a favorite of her parents Ah. it was a favorite of her and her brother okay interesting and so when they were really young they would want to play it again and again and again and again it was one of those movies yeah yeah yeah, totally why i couldn't tell you Uh, because all of the connery ones to be honest having have being a late a late comer to this um feel very slow to me there's no doubt that they are slow and dated and mm-hmm. uh problematic to say <laughs> well and yeah. again like i you know i say that with with love yeah i say it with love like i i do genuinely love these movies but they have become at least those earlier ones have become harder and harder to watch because you're just sort of even goldfinger oh yeah there's some stuff in goldfinger that really cringy oh yeah but I want to talk a little bit about the context of this this entry in the series because so we're this is the fifth entry in the Eon Productions catalog and that that's an important note to make and I would say and in fact Roald Dahl also says uh, it you know he was given when he was hired he was actually not the original writer that was hired there was a there was a different writer who was hired wrote a script. They hated it. They threw it out. They brought him on. And he was basically told by the producers, like, he was given a very precise formula to follow. He said, There have to be three women in Bond's life. The first to get killed and ends up with a third. Oof. Yeah, right? <laughs> and, like, yeah, it's like, we got to introduce we got to introduce a gadget. We got to go to, like, a, a exotic location. I, I do think what's interesting about this one is that he basically only goes to one place. Like, yeah. These these films were sort of famous at the time for being these like globe trotting exotic pictures that like, you know, remember in like the 60s, we travel was not what it is today. And for a lot of people, like this was the way the way to see these exotic locales was through cinema, not through actually going to them. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of part of the appeal of these James Bond movies, I think. Whereas this one, yeah, I mean, he starts off in Hong Kong and then ends up in Japan. And I will say it was really cool to see like 1960s Tokyo and and all that stuff. Like, yeah, that part was cool. 
but it's also the film this was sean connery's last movie last official yeah not even last official because he ends up coming back but this was the last (laughs) film in his contract he hated the experience so much that he basically just walked uh, and was and was done done forever. Famously, when he was interviewed, there's there's an interview on like I think it's the Tonight Show or something, and they're like, "Who played the first Bond villain?" His answer was Cubby Broccoli, the producer of the series, because he <laughs> was so pissed off with him by the end. Uh, a lot of it had to do with money. Basically, they you know when he was contracted, he was not a huge star, but like he was he was famous. But these movies weren't james bond yet and so he was not making the money that someone hired now to play james bond was making, Mm. and his contract he didn't get to renegotiate his salary so even though these movies became bigger and bigger and made heaps and heaps and heaps of money he did not make heaps and heaps and heaps of money sure so by the end he was ready to just off and so this becomes connery's last film on her majesty's secret service comes next they hire this new guy george lazenby he only does one there's a whole story behind that that we don't need to get into, but if you're interested in, it is actually very interesting. And there's a documentary about him, I think it's on Hulu, called Becoming Bond. It's That's a fun watch. They basically then come crawling back to Sean. Sean Connery agrees to make another movie called Diamonds Are Forever, which, again, you want to talk about a slog. Oh, boy. I've seen that one. Yeah, it's basically like, it's just as slow and boring as this one, but without any of the, like, appealing elements, in my opinion. And then, yeah, that's his last movie until the 80s when there's a weird contractual spinoff of Thunderball called Never Say Never Again, where a much older Sean Connery returns in this unofficial James Bond movie, which I actually kind of think is pretty good. But that's sort of the like historical context of where we are. Like, this is very much like a paint by numbers James Bond movie. Sean Connery is clearly phoning it in for most of the movie I felt anyways. Like he's just, I don't think he's enjoying it. And I think it sort of like affects the overall feeling of the film. Yeah. And this, but what I also think is kind of interesting is that this film sort of becomes a blueprint for several other Bond films. Ironically, one's also directed by Lewis Gilbert. Uh, We sort of, I was texting you and saying like, the Spy Who Loved Me is kind of like a soft remake of this. Like the sort of story beats are the same. There's a whole like love interest thing that's different, but the finale is almost identical. And the premise of like capturing a nuclear submarine to piss off another nation and cause mm. war, that's the same basic premise. And then Moonraker is kind of the same too. So, but yeah. And then obviously like the, the James Bond pop culture thing, like it just, it, the the influence this series has had over the last 60 years is obviously very apparent by how often it is parodied not only in the Simpsons, but literally everything. Right. And that's, I mean, that's the interesting thing to me about my history with it is just that I definitely was steeped in these parodies, both the Simpsons and like countless others long before I'd ever seen a James Bond movie. And so like, I knew who the character was, right? you know, I knew, I knew like certain renditions of the character, like, the Simpsons parodies are usually Connery. Yeah. Um, and so, like, I, that's how I think of Bond, usually. So, you know, it, it's interesting how you just get introduced to the, this sort of these elements of pop culture before, before you've even seen the real thing. I guess my question in that case is, like, what, what does that affect on you? Like, how do those parodies resonate when you don't actually know the source material or did it matter? Like, had Bond sort of permeated the culture so much that like even without seeing the movies, you kind of like it still made sense and you still got it and you still found it funny. 
Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the uh, again, the Simpsons are really deft at this, and some some other things are are better and worse at it, but they're very good at making their parodies work out of context. So you don't need to have seen the Bond movies to get the Bond joke. You get that it's a secret agent or, totally. you know, whatever. There's a villain, there's a good guy, and, uh, you know, he's very suave. And, you know, you, they sort of play off of all of the elements of it without you having to have seen it. Um, and so I feel like I got, you know, I got a lot of those jokes just from the, the sort of context of the episode, for example, right. uh, rather than having seen Bond. Uh, and then you just eventually you build up uh, an understanding of who Bond is. So whenever Bond is mentioned, uh, you know, you, you're sort of going back through that catalog of parodies to get the joke. Right. I feel like that's a lot of that's a lot of how I, I feel like I experienced it. What about because, again, like talking about like James Bond's place in culture and obviously my introduction being Goldeneye, which I think for an entire generation, like our generation, that video game was not only an introduction to like video games as a whole and like first person shooters and like so many other things, but like also an introduction to the Bond franchise and this character. Like totally. Did you have I know you didn't you obviously didn't have any connection to the Bond film franchise, but what about through that sort of like ancillary media of like video games and stuff. Did you play those as well? Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't have an N64. I didn't have a lot of friends that had an N64. I remember, I remember Goldeneye being a big sort of phenomenon for people our age, but I didn't play it that much, but I love that. You know, I love that kind of genre of games. So, you know, I think again, I probably had played Bond video games before I'd seen Bond movies. Yeah. Because there were all those like licensed ones after Goldeneye yep. that were kind of more stealthy and, and spy, had more spy stuff. Yeah, they weren't good. They were, yeah, they were kind of, <laughs> you know, so so, but I played a lot of those. Yeah. I think. Oh, and, and things that weren't Bond, but similar sorts of games. So, right. you know, I think, I, yeah, you're probably right. I probably did get introduced to Bond through that as much as through anything else. Well, let's dig, let's like start to dig into the this film and talk about some of the highlights and lowlights questions confusions yeah exactly concerns. i want to I ask you right off the top because the film opens with a pretty shocking shall we say opening we're too late well at least he died on the job did you think that james bond was really dead because they really go like they try to sell yeah. it big time that like oh my god the first five minutes of this movie James Bond. Now, granted, you know, because it's now 60 years later, 50 years later, you know, well, there's another 20 of these movies to come. So, right. Like it kind of spoils it. Yeah. Did that did that opening work for you or? You know, I mean, I I thought the whole the whole that whole subplot was absolutely ridiculous. (laughs) But, you know, because it, it especially because the name of the film comes from this premise of him faking his death. Right. And it has absolutely nothing to do with the plot. It is just no. a way, it's just, it's it's actually like a Simpsons episode where the first act- It has nothing to do with the rest. Yeah, yeah, is, yeah. has nothing to do with the second and third act. It's that kind of thing where there's this kind of um, little sub story of him faking his death and then getting revived in a submarine <laughs> well there is i think blofeld does like make some comment at the Later. end that's yeah, yeah, where yeah he's like he oh, says, the, he says the, the line of the yeah, movie he, he says you only live twice mr bond Tom, wink wink but he did i think he's like someone 
there is like, oh, James Bond, I thought you were dead. But like, yeah, there's really there doesn't yeah. seem to be any because like it happens before they even set up the plot of the film. So it's like there's no that's right reason for him to fake his death. Yeah. I mean, they just kind of vaguely say, so your enemies can't find you, yeah. but you have no idea. You know, I mean, I, guess, I think the thing is, I think that they're kind of relying on the fact that a lot of people at the time would have known either seen the other Bond movies right. or were, you know, kind of getting it through osmosis. And so they, they probably, people probably come in knowing a little bit like, you know, oh, it's Spectre and it's, you know, Blofeld and all this kind of stuff. Um, and so, you know, maybe they were really leaning on that to make the faking, the death faking thing make sense. Right. But, it, you know, for me, <laughs> you know, not, not having seen the other ones very recently, I was kind of just like, what is this? Why is this in here? Well, not only that, they do it again, and I, I'm pretty sure it's in Thunderball, like the pre, the the movie immediately preceding it. Oh. <laughs> I could be mistaken, but like the the it opens on a shot of a casket that has like a big JB on it, and you're like <laughs> the audience, oh, is that is James Bond dead? Like, did he die in the opening credit sequence or something? And then like 90% certain it's Thunderball, but it opens on this J- coffin. This is JB, and then it's like somebody else who has like the same initials. Oh, it's Jason Barnaby. Yeah, exactly. Right. But, but yeah, I just like, I don't understand this, like this premise, because again, like you have to assume even going to this movie, they're not going to kill the main character of the series off in the first five minutes, but also to logically, it just doesn't make sense. It adds very little to the movie. Is she in on it? Are the police, are the like military guys who run in and shoot him? Are they in on it? How did he avoid getting shot? Because like when the Murphy bed comes down, he gets shot in a Murphy bed, which is so like the least cool way to kill (laughs) off your main character too. Yes. Like he gets folded up into the wall and then shot a bunch of times folds back down. There's like bullet holes in the wall. So like, how did he survive this? Well, because you kind of, with the Murphy bed, you kind of expect that they're going to, you know, bring it back down and he's going to be gone. Yeah, exactly. Right. Because it's like, he's out of sight and, but but they don't do, they don't pull that trick. There's no real reason why it happens in a Murphy bed. (laughs) No, he's there. And then, and then actual police come in, check his pulse. They're like, yep, he's dead. Which like, no, he's not like, what do you mean? And then, and then they have that whole sequence of them dumping the body in the ocean, yeah. and the, the divers getting the body, pulling it into a submarine. It is so unbelievably elaborate. Unzipping the bag, and then he comes out perfectly dressed. And yeah, I don't recommend Bond. Of yeah, course, no, it's it. It basically sets the the, it, the tone. <laughs> yeah, the tone for the rest of the movie. Like, it's okay, true. we're we're this is what we're in for, right? And it's super formulaic from there on out. It's like. He then gets the mission from from M. He, you know, he has to see. Well, actually, he doesn't go. This is what is interesting is he doesn't go to see. Normally, he goes to CQ to get his gadgets for the for the rest of the, the film. Whereas in this one, he gets Q to come to him with his gadgets, which we'll talk about in a little bit. So but yeah, like it's just I don't know. Like I found it. The only part of it that I really enjoy is when he goes to that office and he, he there's like the really cool fight in the office or well cool is maybe not the right word for it but there's the (laughs) fight in the office and like the safe cracking thing like that's pretty fun yeah and then like i don't know i mean i you know what i will say is that like there there are some moments where you can kind of feel maybe i'm giving him too much credit but you can kind of feel roll doll giving a little wink to the to the formula right so it's like okay so so hear me out he gets, you know, he gets, yeah, he gets his mission from M. That's very, like, you know, classic. That's exactly how this always works. But instead of 
going to the headquarters, it all happens in a submarine. Oh yeah, yeah. And exactly. but the way that it's shot is exactly like how it's done in the other Connery movies yes. in the office. Yes. So it's like, you know, he goes into the into the the whatever you call it, the foyer where Money Penny's sitting, right? And it's shot exactly the same, like a proscenium set, right? And then, and then he goes into M's office. And it begs the question, like, do they have, like, is this submarine, did they, like, take everything from their offices in London and bring them to the submarine? Or do they just have, like, doubles of everything? Because it's like, oh, we're going to the submarine right. now. We got to make, we got to make sure everybody's comfortable, like. Right. But it's kind of like, you know, like, you can, you can kind of feel, and that feels very rolled doll. It's kind of this, right. like, yeah. absolutely bizarre, off the wall kind of, like, twist on the, the formula. And then the other one, the other, the other thing, um, that again, it almost feels like a joke out of the Simpsons is that like, this is yet another bond movie that ends with bond on a boat with his love interest. Right. And that happens in, I don't remember what, like, uh, I think, I think all of them up to this point, like I'm pretty sure they all end like that. Just so bizarre. I mean, it's just like totally weird, you know, but in this one, it's not like a, a little, a little, like a nice little rowboat or like a whatever. It's like, He's in a rubber dinghy and then <laughs> and then the submarine comes up and lifts them out of the water and they're sitting on top of it. So it's kind of again, it's kind of cheeky and funny and weird right. uh, in a way that does feel a little bit different and, and was kind of enjoyable. And maybe maybe I, I you know, again, maybe I'm giving too much credit, but it feels intentional. It feels it feels like a, a little like he's having a little fun with the, the formula. Well, and it's interesting, too, because, again, like speaking to the context of the Bond series, like this is the 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 Sean Connery era is very much seen as like when the when it was everything was taken seriously. It was it was everything was played straight. Right. Then you have on Honor Majesty's Secret Service, which is a, like a very tonally very different. Like spoiler alert, his wife gets murdered at the end of the movie, uh, and then back to this weird like Diamonds Are Forever, which is just unwatchable Honor. in my opinion. And then like the Roger Moore era, which is sort of where James Bond becomes like the thing that everybody knows James Bond is before like the Daniel Craig era sort of rebooted everything. Like lots of like knowing winks to the camera, super punny, like all the things that Austin Powers is sort of like making fun of all kind of comes from the, the like Roger Moore era. Then the Tim Dalton era where they sort of, they try and like, cause it's the eighties. So they kind of go like a little more serious, a little more like drug Lordy. And then the Brosnan era where they just, they, cannot for the life of them sort of figure out the tone they want it's like <laughs> half the time it's super serious half the time it's like just dumb puns christmas only comes once a year like oh, <laughs> god dreadful and then and then you get the daniel craig era where again it's like the pendulum swung way too far in one direction so they have to like course correct so it is interesting that like we we haven't quite got to the roger moore like winking knowing sort of silly era but this is starting to like maybe not take itself too seriously all the time i mean there are some really exceptionally silly moments in this that that again i think they they feel a little intentional i don't think that they're like they're they're totally like uh out of touch silly they're they're like they're just totally over the top um which we could talk to i think but particularly with the gadgets there's some really great over the top bizarre things let's well let's talk about the gadgets because the gadgets are obviously like a hallmark of the james bond series and they are usually again and i it's hard it's it is hard to sort of talk about them in 2022 versus 1967 because like now they just seem really silly but like at the time i have to assume that 
not all of them, but some of them were kind like, of audience must have been like, oh, that's 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 kind of cool. Yeah, sure. Little Nelly, for example. Let's talk about Little Nelly. Oh boy, Little Nelly. So first of all, I guess you have to describe like, what is Little Nelly. Right. So at one point, James says, tell M to bring Little Nelly and her father. And Little Nelly and her father show up, and the father is Q, the quartermaster, and he brings Little Nelly, which is this small portable helicopter, which I found out from reading the official Tash and James Bond archives is actually referred to as an autogyro, which is perhaps the most <laughs> Simpson-esque. In fact, I there is a, literally a scene in The Simpsons where Mr. Burns asks about an autogyro. Am I too late for the 430 autogyro? Of course. There you go. So I think it's hilarious that that's what this thing is actually called. But yeah, it's essentially, it's this tiny little helicopter that, again... In 1967, it was probably really cool. And to see like Sean Connery flying it was maybe really cool. But I think he just looks like a fucking <laughs> idiot. Like, well, so so when he gets into, he's wearing kind of what looks like a miner's helmet. Yep. But instead of a headlamp, he has a camera built in. <laughs> but it's like, a, you know, it's not a miniaturized camera. It's like a giant camera lens. No, because it's 1967. Yeah. So it doesn't look cool. I mean... It, it looks it looks profoundly silly. And and to be fair, Sean Connery is a very tall man. Like the I don't know if mm. you if you read this little piece of trivia, but the the Toyota like I think it's a Toyota, the little like convertible car that Aki is driving around in, like drives him around in a bunch mm-hmm. that has the like the TV screen in it, which I still think that's pretty cool. And like by 1967 standards, that must have been really cool. Yeah, sure. Lots of Sony product placement there too. Mm-hmm. But that car is was not a convertible. They literally had to chop the top <laughs> off of it because Sean Connery was so tall he would not fit into it. Wow. So, like, they didn't make them convertibles. It's literally just they had to retrofit this car so that Sean could fit in it because he's a big guy. So, like, oh, my God, him in the in this tiny little helicopter. It's just like the image of it is just so absurd. It's very silly. I, I you know, I don't know. I would be very curious to know what the reaction to that was back in the day, because I mean, they put it on the poster, though. Yeah, like, it's very exotic and, and weird, right? It's like a, a weird, cool piece of technology in in theory. Yeah. <laughs> but in, watching it in the film, it just looks very silly. He doesn't look like the suave Bond thing with, you no. know, using a cool gadget. He looks like a very tall man in a very small auto gyro <laughs> um, chasing down bad guys with uh, flamethrowers and rockets and stuff coming out of it. It's anyway. So that's so that's one that's one fun gadget i i i personally really liked the uh the x-ray vision desk that uh we saw in the the office oh true i also pointed out that you know there's a scene about halfway through where like james bond is being threatened by one of the women one of the women who dies i don't remember her name uh, because again i wasn't really paying that close attention because i don't like this movie very much but and i i thought it was hilarious that in goldfinger you know he's being threatened with like a laser beam which is like that's really cool and in this it's a lady with a scalpel. That's that's the big cool gadget right. to threaten his life is, oh, I could perform plastic surgery on you. Right. And then she decides not to stab him. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, because his charm is too too magnetic. Right. But then they take off in an airplane and she decides to try to kill him in a plane crash. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a very convoluted, like, back and forth thing that happens there. Yeah. No, it's not great. There's also the car chase with the electromagnet, which right. felt very Fast and Furious to me. Yeah. In fact, I'm pretty sure there's they do that in the Fast and Furious. Oh, thing. I hadn't thought of that. That's true. Yeah, that, I mean, that was one of those ones that felt really super ridiculous to me because 
you know, my favorite is that is that you know Sean Connery says after after they like His you know the helicopter takes out an electromagnet, chases down a car, picks it up, and throws it into the water. And he says something like, oh, "Oh, that's Japanese efficiency for you." And it's really not efficient. No, <laughs> it's a very roundabout way. It also seems like something that, like they could very easily like outrun this. Like yeah. it's, it's, it doesn't seem very it's, practical. But, but it's like you know. But people probably. I, I wonder if people even really knew what an electromagnet was right when this came out. Well, I was gonna say, and I was gonna say, like it looks like they did it for real. Like it doesn't. Yeah. look like it's, it's miniatures. True. So it's it, true. Again, to a 1967 audience who hasn't seen anything like this, they probably were like, "Well, that's cool. It's stupid, mm-hmm. but it's cool." Yeah. Speaking of stupid but cool, the the piranha pit. With the with the, uh, the the you know the the walkway that turns into a slide to to get rid right. of your enemies, right? That was a fun little moment, which obviously was parodied in in Austin Powers. Which we haven't really talked about this, but like you want to talk about blueprint for future parody, like this. So many elements from this. The entire back half of this movie basically is is Austin Powers. Like Austin yeah, Powers yeah. is riffing on well, and we also discovered it's actually more riffing on the the spoof of the james bond series that came out the same year casino royale not daniel craig's casino royale but the other casino royale casino royale but like austin Powers. so austin powers is basically these two james bond movies that come out in the same year had that like a huge major impact on the, the austin powers movies right down to like dr evil is very clearly inspired by the look of blofeld in this one the cat right right and the number one, number two yeah, stuff, exactly, all yeah. that, all that. Living in a giant volcano, the one, $100 million, like it's yeah, all, it's yeah. all there. And of course, there's also a monorail, which fun little Simpsons connection. Monorail. There's another film that features right. evil genius villain with a monorail system. The Incredibles, directed by Mr. Brad Bird, who was a supervising director or like creative, I think he's like like creative consultant or something like that. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So there's a nice little Simpsons connection there. He obviously was a big fan of this film. Yeah, you could definitely see some influence from this kind of era of Bond in The Incredibles yeah. and the and the, the sequel. But I want to now talk, <laughs> lovingly, of course, I want to talk about the, let's call them cringier moments in the film because there's <laughs> a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. So, so the obvious ones, right, are about sexism Mm -hmm. and about, you know, racism towards Japanese people. Yep. However, one of the first things, well, actually, that's not true. The the very first thing is the first line that Bond has in the movie, which yes. I, I don't even think I can repeat, but well, let's, let's just listen to, let's let Sir Sean Connery deliver it. Why do Chinese girls taste different from all other girls? The, I, I, like, yeah. right, you know what you're Again, getting. Yeah, sets the tone, right? Sets the tone that's, right out of the game. Much, much like the, the death faking thing really sets the tone for the rest of the movie. Um, but, but one of the next things that happens is that he, you know, he gets introduced to another agent. I think, I can't, I, you know, it's another British agent, I guess. Uh, oh, yes. Well, actually, and fun fact. So that, that agent, he's played by Charles Gray, who film aficionados might remember as the criminologist in the rocky horror picture show the guy like and in like it's just a jump to the left that's charles gray but what makes this even more interesting and more relevant is that he ends up playing blofeld in diamonds are forever oh wow okay interesting so he they recast 
Blofeld gets recast a number of times throughout the series. And Charles Gray is one of the, he ends up coming back, not as this character, but as Blofeld. And again, no one makes any comments about the fact that, hey, why, why do you look exactly like this guy I saw get murdered in Japan? But yeah, figures. Well, yeah, spoilers. Oh, sorry. Um, well, I yeah, mean, but but so yeah, so he he you know Bond gets introduced to this this uh, you know British agent. Basically, he he walks into the room and you, I guess Bond suspects that he may be disabled and have a prosthetic leg, so he steals his cane and whacks him on his leg to see to just to check. Yeah. <laughs> Which I guess I guess there's, what you're supposed to take away from that is Bond is very perceptive. Uh, I guess <laughs> perceptive, but inconsiderate. But his standards. It's an outrageously inappropriate thing to do. Yeah. So anyway, that was that was a fun one that you know surprised me because uh, you kind of expect the racism and the sexism. But I do I do. There is a moment in that scene though that I really like where the Charles Gray character gets the martini order wrong. Right. Oh, that's uh, stirred, not shaken. That was right, wasn't it? Perfect. Cheers. Cheers. And James being the consummate gentleman, like he he doesn't correct him on his his incorrect martini. Oh, but don't worry, he's not going to be a consummate gentleman throughout the rest of the film because, oh, no. as we're going to learn, let's let's talk about the bathing scene. Oh God, which feels incredibly gratuitous and weird, and just there's of course the line from Tiger Tanaka of "In Japan, men always come first, women come second. Which again, Ugh. as we know from from Austin Powers, Austin Powers then puts on the button of, or sometimes not at all, <laughs> right? Which is one of those jokes that I didn't get in 1997 when Austin Powers comes out, but now as an adult, I'm like, ooh, that's rather, yeah. rather filthy. <laughs> well, that was a moment that that managed to really blend together, you know, a little bit, a little bit of racism and a little bit of sexism all together into mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. A really terrible moment. But you want to talk about, I think, the arguably the most racist part of the movie, which is when James becomes Japanese. Yeah. And they basically, like, give him a bowl cut and, like, some eye prosthetics. And, just, and I, I don't know if you noticed, but when Sean Connery is playing Japanese, he, like, hunches his body oh, God. the whole time grueling so terrible and and also he kind of still just looks like sean connery oh yeah well they basically give up after about like five minutes i think they just yeah like, okay well we're we're over with this this thing but like again at the time unfortunately this was not wholly uncommon because we had of course well yeah breakfast at tiffany's with mickey rooney playing Ugh. arguably the most offensive japanese stereotype ever committed to film yeah. And then speaking of his non-gentlemanly ways, he then has to marry a Japanese lady. What did they refer to her as? Well, so so in coming up to the scene, he keeps expressing his concern that he's going to be married to the pig-faced woman, which is I mean, again, just oh, Jesus. It's just very gratuitous. Yeah. I told you this like I said, this movie is I warned you before we started. I was like you're you're going to be in for a wild ride with this one and i don't know if you noticed i certainly did because i was not paying attention to anything else but near the end of the film when there's all the explosions are going off and stuff and clearly they're doing them like live on set because that's it's the 60s and safety be damned yeah the poor cat is oh yeah like clinging on for dear life is like its eyes are wide open like just the i felt so bad for that little cat 
Yeah, and then halfway through the the finale, the cat runs away, like jumps out of out of Blofeld's arms, and is never seen for the rest of the movie. Because at that point, after the cat did that, they're probably like, "Perfect, that's an excuse to not yeah get rid of this cat cat on the scene." That was minor in the scheme of of offensiveness, but (laughs) but pretty terrible for that actual cat. So I mean, it's what we're all trying to do was escape the 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 horrors of this Uh, film. Yeah, but uh, I mean, like, it's not. It, it, I would say it's not without its charm. That you know, you pointed out that there are several moments in the film that feel almost like Simpsons jokes themselves. Right, right. Thing, first thing that came to my mind was when Money Penny throws him the book of instant Japanese. Right. It's like it's like uh, you know the Matrix when Neo comes out yeah. and says. I know Kung Fu. It's that kind of feeling. But it's also like, it's 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 a very small, very like thin book that like, oh, right. this is all you would need to know to be able to speak Japanese. And, and, and do you recall what his response is? Oh, do I ever. You forget I took a first in Oriental languages at Cambridge. Yeah. Uh, th- and that that is certainly part of the, the canon of James Bond that he just whatever he needs to know, he just so happens to know. It's always convenient, convenient for him. But, but of course, you know, he doesn't sp- I, he speaks maybe a word of Japanese in this whole movie. And I believe it is sayonara. Yeah. Yeah. There's no <laughs> none of the Japanese people are any have any interest in speaking Japanese in Japan. They all, for some reason, speak, of course, English with heavily dubbed American or English actors accents right right there's there's also the human torpedo moment yeah so that so you know when he after his whole sort of m introduction in the submarine <laughs> in order to exit the submarine he doesn't come in through the whatever you call that the lock right yeah, the, that hatch. He, the hatch that he came in through no 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 he appears to climb into a torpedo tube and then is shot out of the front of the submarine and then and then goes out that way no idea why. I think it's just they were just like, now we need a cooler exit. And so they turned him into a human torpedo. And uh, when that happened, I immediately thought of that episode of The Simpsons where Homer, remember, he becomes like the captain of a submarine. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that someone gets trapped in the torpedo and like he fires the torpedoes and then, yeah, so. Checks out. But my favorite moment, and I literally wrote this in my notes, and it's both silly but also like a weirdly kind of cool is the fight in the office where they where they use a couch as a weapon yes yeah totally a, you know like a battering ram or something <laughs> like, and, and it's got it's almost got that kind of uh, born uh born movie sort of vibe where he's yeah. like using an improvised weapon but it's a, <laughs> it's a whole couch it's so completely absurd and, but he, it, and he knocks this guy out the, with a yeah, couch a big and he's a big guy too <laughs> yeah 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 that's a good one and then, and then at the very end of the movie, right after the the crisis is averted, this is this is another one of my favorites. Where you have all throughout the whole crisis, you have the you, you keep cutting back to the Americans in their like war room situation, right. and they're kind of worrying about what's going to happen and trying to figure out if they're going to like destroy Russia, basically. And then after they're like, oh no, it's okay. Uh, all of the, <laughs> there's this shot of all these like American like generals and politicians just kind of getting up and walking out of the room. And you're like, oh, okay, well, so yeah, what's for lunch? You know, uh, and it, it, that that felt very much like a a, a a Simpsons moment to me as well. <laughs> totally. There's yeah, there's sort of a uh, all of the Bond movies I find kind of like lose steam in the third act, and it mm-hmm. seems like also just like the writers have lost steam, and they because they all kind of have of, like a big climax, but then like once the film is resolved, it's like it's just like. Meh. Okay, we're good. Like, there's yeah. no, there's no like ramifications for what's happened, and that's a perfect example of that. But was there anything 
in the film that you actually would say you liked? I mean, the the climactic battle is is pretty cool. I mean, you get this like you know amazing set right of yeah. the you know which is actually genuinely pretty cool. You know, inside a volcano. And but you know, like the top opens up and it's actually like a launch pad, and you know, you have these like ninjas coming in from the ceiling, and you know, uh, all the soldiers coming out to fight them, and you know, there's lots of different stuff going on. It's actually, I think it's actually pretty well choreographed, like you keep track of the action. Um, you know, it's not like one of those sort of big, confusing, messy sort of action sequences, it's like you can really keep track of everything, so that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, the set is really so set designer on these movies at the time was a guy named Ken Adam. And he is like sort of famous for these just absolutely incredible production design. Uh, I'm pretty sure he worked with Kubrick and I'm I'm 90% certain that he's the set designer on Dr. Strangelove. Mm. And you can kind of see that sort of influence in a lot of the like the sort of the war room set in in right. Strange Love is very kind of bondy. But one of the sort of trivia items I came up with in doing research was that that volcano set, because they built it for real and it was like this giant ass set, literally cost more than the entire budget of Dr. No. <laughs> and that it was so big that you literally could see it from like three miles away. Wow. This is an era where like there's no CGI. You could like you could do matte paintings and stuff. And there's, you know, there are some incredible matte paintings out there. But like a lot of the time, these guys, they were just like, nah, we're just going to build it. I, I will say that that sort of was my favorite part of the film was just like the overall like production design and vibe of it is kind of fun. And it, like I said, it's fun to see Japan in the 60s. It's fun to be in that era. Like it's a, it is such a cool era. Mm-hmm. Um, but plot wise, it, it didn't really didn't really do much. Yeah, but it was a very success. It was a very successful film. It was the second highest grossing film of the year behind oh. The Dirty Dozen. I, I also thought it was kind of interesting too. This, this was sort of the first Bond film where they basically had nothing to do with the the book. Like they took the title of the book and like some el- like the Ghost of Japan elements, but otherwise it's almost entirely like an original story. And that sort of becomes the blueprint moving forward like the books are very sort of loosely adapted and become more and more loosely adapted to the point where it's just they're literally just taking the title and then it has absolutely nothing else to do with it but yeah well there are you know i mean sometimes we're talking about decades between when the book was written mm-hmm. and the and the movies came out too so there's sometimes that makes sense right it's like the the plots may not necessarily hold up from the books i would imagine i also thought it was kind of cool that like those the little rocket guns and like the cigarette things those gadgets were actual like product placement. They really existed. Wow. They were just not very reliable and were incredibly expensive. So they were never adopted by any like government. Or- not very reliable. That's yeah. not what you want to hear no. for, for a, a, a pistol that shoots rockets or an exploding cigar. I mean, that sounds like a prank thing, but it, that's basically what it is, right? Shoots a, shoots a rocket out of a, out of a cigarette. Yeah, and then this was also, and we sort of touched on this before, the last Bond movie to make extensive use of voice dubbing. In this movie and most of the previous Bond movies, many of his leading ladies uh, were dubbed by other actors and actresses because they would usually, like, they would find some, like, Swedish model or, like, you know, Eastern European model whose English was terrible. So they would have to like dub them by a British lady. And it's like the same British lady in all of the movies. So it's like all the women have the same voice if you listen really carefully. And they were really, really good at it to the point where I didn't even know this until like a couple years ago. In Goldfinger, 
Goldfinger, that's not his voice. Like he is dubbed the entire film. Wow. But, like they mix and match everything so perfectly. Like, cause we've talked about how, you know, I struggle with, you know, Italian cinema because the dubbing is so obvious and so bad. Whereas here, flawless. Yeah. Seamless. Like you literally would have, if, if you didn't know, you probably would never guess. Yeah. I, I, and of course I have a real soft spot for dubbing partly because I am a, I do love Westerns and I love Italian Westerns in particular, but you know, uh, I, I kind of love that it feels a little bit fake and a little bit campy or something, you know, when, when you can kind of tell that the lip sync isn't quite right. But yeah, in this movie, I didn't notice at all. So that's kind of fascinating. So let's now change gears. Let's talk about the Simpson episode that was sort of influenced by both this specific film and the James Bond films in general. But it's sort of like what got us to check this film out, which was, of course, season eight, episode two, You Only Move Twice. Original air date, November 3rd, 1996, written by John Schwartzwelder and directed by Mike B. Anderson. And this was during probably, I would say, as an adult anyways, my favorite era of The Simpsons. Yeah. Two seasons that were showrun by Oakley and Weinstein. I just love, I love this era. I love the stories that they told. I love that they sort of like, took things in a bit of a wackier direction. Uh, And I'm going to read the official plot synopsis from the official Ultimate Simpsons episode guide. The Simpsons move to Cypress Creek, where Homer accepts a job at Globex Corporation. While Homer enjoys his work and is impressed by his boss's friendly, down-to-earth style, the rest of the family has trouble adjusting. Marge is bored living in her self-maintaining house, Bart is moved to a remedial program at school, and Lisa is allergic to all of the area's plant life. Homer fails to notice that his boss, Hank Scorpio, is a terrorist and Globex his vehicle for international extortion. Instead, he basks in the intention of his boss and becomes a relatively competent manager. When he finds out that his family is unhappy, however, he must make a choice between Cypress Creek and Springfield. In the midst of a siege on the Globex compound, Homer resigns. The Simpsons return to Springfield and Hank Scorpio takes over the East Coast. In appreciation for Homer's services, Scorpio gifts him the Denver Broncos. (laughs) it's a good ending it is it's a it's a fun it's a fun ending this is a classic episode it is considered by many fans to be one of the best i wouldn't necessarily place it in my top 10 or top five which is ironic because like i think being a huge james bond fan like this ticks a lot of boxes for me i do i i like it i don't dislike it but i don't know that this is one that like gun to my head i would necessarily pick as one of my all-time favorites wow but it has so many great moments it has of course albert brooks shows up to play hank scorpio mm-hmm. brooks being a legendary simpsons guest star famous for his like ad-libbing famously one of the few celebrities that would show up as a guest star in the early days of the series when they literally couldn't get guest stars and they were like doing it under pseudonyms because they were so embarrassed to be on the show <laughs> what are your thoughts on this episode what do you what are some of your favorite moments yeah, no, it's it's a it's a really awesome episode. There are lots of great moments throughout. I love just the conceit, the way they brought together all these different concepts. You know, I was listening to the commentary and just the the overall concept for the episode, I guess, is is a favorite. So, you know, they wanted to get the Simpsons out of Springfield, right? To give them something new to kind of bounce off of. They wanted to give Homer a new boss, and they were, you know, this was sort of when Silicon Valley was kind of really in the zeitgeist. So they wanted to, they wanted to give him like a, a sort of new age boss that actually treated him with respect and a workplace that was, you know, more 21st century than like 
you know, uh, 19th century. Yep. <laughs> and so that, that was part of it. And then of course they wanted to, to do like a, uh, Homer's boss is Blofeld thing. And so that all kind of comes together. And that, and I, I think that's one of the things that they do so well with their parodies is that they're, that they're very rarely straight parodies yeah. of like just one thing. They often like combine things from different sources to kind of create something that is actually kind of new. So, you know, this is this, the plot of this is very recognizably bondish, but it also brings together all these other, these other ideas too. Yeah. And I think it's so interesting because you sort of said like the structure of the episode is kind of unique in Simpson episodes because like, and we alluded to this earlier about how one of the things that really started to happen, certainly like later in the series, certainly around this era is like act one is completely unrelated to the remaining of the story. Like it's sort of like those, it's basically like a weird roundabout way of setting up act two and three. Mm-hmm. Whereas this is one of the few where it's like, it's, it's a traditional like narrative arc. Like there's a beginning, a middle and an end. It's not just like a means to get to like the next joke, which I think is kind of like, it's kind of an interesting approach because they s- sort of have stopped doing that by this point, or they're stopping to do that and start getting like more and more absurd but also just like so many of the jokes are just so like they they tick they tick that little part of my funny bone that I love where it's like it it's so silly and it makes no sense and that's why I love it like the line when <laughs> the line when Scorpio says to Homer like ever see a guy say goodbye to a shoe and Homer's response is yes yeah, once <laughs> I don't know why I find that so so funny like, right it, it it makes no sense and like is Homer talking about yes once I just did or like at another point in his life to right. throw his shoe? Like, I don't know, but it's, it's funny. Like, yeah. it's unres- I just find it funny. Yeah. Yeah. And probably totally ad-libbed. Yeah, t- t- exactly. Or the, like the hammock district run. Hammocks. Homer, there's four places. There's the hammock hut. That's on third. Uh-huh. There's hammocks or us. Got that's it. on third too. You got put your butt there. Mm-hmm. That's on third. Yeah. Swing low, sweet chariot. Right. Matter of fact, they're all in the same complex. It's the hammock complex down on third. Oh, the hammock district. That's right. That's one of my favorite moments. Yeah. And of course, like when when he asks for sugar and Scorpio literally just pulls handfuls of sugar out of his pockets. There you go. Sorry, it's not in packages. Right. And then he asks him if he wants cream. <laughs> and Homer's response of, um, uh, no. <laughs> You know, you've got you get all those great like bond bond jokes and bond references, but it's just it's yeah, it's a really fun story. And it's like it's kind of fun to see Homer succeed for a change because like so many of the episodes are about Homer being an idiot and Homer being terrible at his job. And like he's actually he's not all. And it makes you know, it begs the question of like, is all that Homer needs is just like somebody to encourage him and he might actually not be a screw up. Like, is that really all it took? But Okay, well let's 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 dig into like because we pulled two clips today that we wanted to sort of dig a little bit further into. The first is a section from the climax of the episode where Homer is coming to basically resign and is maybe not fully aware of what's going on around him. Got a problem, Hank. Oh, gee, Homer, could wait a sec, please? Well, it's pretty important. Uh, uh, oh, hey, what's going on? I'm having a little trouble with the government. Oh, those jerks always walking over to the small businessman. Don't get me started about the government. What's the problem? Well, my family wants to move back to Springfield. Let him go. You'll stay here with me. We'll go bowling. What's bothering him? Nothing big. It's just a lot of little things. Well, 
can't argue with the little things. It's the little things that make up life. Homer, I'm disappointed, but I think you need to do what's best for your family. Well, thanks for everything, Hank. Need anything, you call me. All right, what's the number? I never had to call my own company. Someone will tell you upstairs. But Homer, on your way out, if you want to kill somebody, it would help me a lot. It's <laughs> uh, a great clip. So, you know, I mean, I think the, the, the thing about this clip, of course, is that this conversation where, you know, his boss is being very supportive and understanding is happening with basically the climax of you only live twice happening behind it. In the background, yeah. In exactly. the background. So they're like on the set of the, the giant volcano launch pad situation and there are people, you know, coming down from the ceiling, just like in the movie, the ninjas. You have, you know, people shooting each other and explosions and all of this crazy nonsense happening. Uh, and it's, it's kind of a classic Simpsons gag in that way of, the sort of foreground background n- not making sense together, right? Like that's where that's a big part of where the comedy comes from. Yeah, literally one of my favorite things that The Simpsons does is that sort of like background humor that is completely unacknowledged by the characters on screen. It's always yeah. those jokes are always super funny, or at least um, by one of the characters in this well, case. Yeah, well, yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, well, and then there's like you said, there's sort of like all these references to to the Bond movies, and this is interesting because in the trivia. And they ref- even in the commentary, they call her Miss Goodthighs. Yeah. Which is the name of a Bond girl in the terrible spoof 1967. Casino Royale. Yeah. But she doesn't do anything in that movie. No. She doesn't she doesn't look the character in the in the episode does not look like the actress in that movie. No, exactly. And what she does with her legs. <laughs> is not something that happens in that movie either. No, but she crushes a man, she basically crushes a man's larynx and kills him, which is something that the character of Xenia Onatop in Goldeneye does do, but I don't know if this is like I because no one has ever like sort of drawn that connection. I don't know if it's an intentional reference yeah. or not. And it's and it's like one of those things where timing-wise the reference could have maybe just made it yeah. in under the wire in the writer's room because, it, you know, Goldeneye came out almost exactly a year before this episode. Right. But, you know, again, no one's ever said explicitly whether it is a reference or it isn't, so hard to say. But but maybe it just felt like a thing that could happen in a Bond totally, movie, totally, and that's yeah. enough. And it's kind of like it became one of those things that after the fact was even funnier because it did happen in Goldeneye. Let's play our other clip that we sort of pulled from here. Ingenious, isn't it, Mr. Bunt? Scorpio, you're totally mad. (laughs) I wouldn't point fingers, you jerk. Sure, do you expect me to talk? I don't expect anything from you except to die and be a very cheap funeral. You're gonna die now. Stop him! He's supposed to die! Nice work, Homer! Am I proud of you? So obviously, like, this is... And again, there is a there is an argument to be made that we really should have picked Goldfinger because this is like very clearly from Goldfinger. It's obviously the scene where Goldfinger is. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. You know, they literally cribbed the dialogue from it. But it is also this sort of like the most iconic moment in the James Bond franchise. It's like even people who don't know James Bond know this moment. So mm-hmm. you you found like a little fun, fun fact about about that. 
Yeah, I was reading a little bit about like the making of that original scene in Goldfinger. So apparently in the original book, same scene happens, but you know, it was a while before the movie came out. And so it was actually a circular saw uh, that Bond is being threatened with in much the same way, kind of moving up towards his crutch. But uh, the screenwriters thought that that would seem kind of old fashioned and totally ridiculous. So they replaced it with an industrial laser. As you do. Yeah, as one does, which apparently at the time was such a kind of new invention that it didn't really even have any practical applications oh, okay. um, at the time. So so that's part of why you, you have this long explanation of what the hell an industrial laser is in the movie. You are looking at an industrial laser which emits an extraordinary light not to be found in nature. It can project a spot on the moon or at closer range... Cut through solid metal. I will show you. And so the the you know the effect that they that that, that happens right. Um, they they tried using a real laser at first, but they realized that it wouldn't show up on film unless they turned off all of the lights, which is problematic. So they basically did that part in post, but they still needed a way to make the table actually kind of ignite and and uh, and and create like a, a place where the laser had uh, gone through. And so they actually did that with, by soldering the table together and then putting a blowtorch underneath. Jesus. Um, so there's actually like a real blowtorch moving up towards Sean Connery's crotch. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and you can see in a couple shots in the in the movie that he looks genuinely concerned about what's going on there. So that's that's kind of fun. Um, but yeah, this is also like a scene that, that of course, the Simpsons have parodied at least once before, but probably maybe even twice before. Uh, there's a really, there's a really funny one, of course, an itchy, an itchy and scratchy cartoon where they play with this scene as well, but with much more disastrous results, of course. And then, uh, possibly again, this is one of those ones where I'm like, I'm not sure if this is actually a real, a real reference or not. But in the very first episode that aired of The Simpsons, right. uh, Simpsons roasting on an open fire, Bart gets a tattoo, and uh, which I totally had forgotten about. But the, in the scene where he gets it removed, the, just the kind of the visual language of what's going mm. on looks a lot like the scene in the movie. You know, Bart is kind of strapped down to a board, right. and then there's like a laser that's going to take off of the, the you know the tattoo, and it's just kind of. Uh, it's like a very exaggerated sort of situation in the in the episode that looks a lot like the scene from this movie. So that's kind of fun. And then, of course, there's also the the deleted. It, it's a it's a deleted scene, right? Like it's not actually yeah. in the yeah. So there's the the deleted scene from Dollar Side Springfield or Springfield that is shown in the the Simpsons 138th episode spectacular from the previous season, where Homer plays blackjack with James Bond and ultimately gets him. Well, maybe not killed, but at the very least. Dragged away mysteriously. <laughs> Dragged away by by Blofeld. And yeah, it's a very similar sort of setup where it's like a classic Bond scene. Bond seems like he's he's on top of it. He's very cool and suave, you know, and then uh, Homer screws it up for him and gets him killed. Joker, you were supposed to take those out of the deck. Oh, sorry. Here's another one. What is this card? Rules for drawn stud poker. What a pity, Mr. Bond. But, but it was Homer's fault. I didn't lose. I never lose. Well, at least tell me the details of your plot for world domination. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to fall for that one again. So all, all in all, good episode, classic episode, lots of fun to be had. So to wrap things up, Nate, would you recommend You Only Live Twice? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I, I wouldn't. Um, you know, it's like, there. I'm glad I've seen it. 
in mm-hmm. some ways. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I think if you're looking for like a really bad Bond movie that's that's funnier and more fun, I think there are probably better options out there. Yeah. So, yeah. But what do you what do you what about you? What do you think? I mean, I, I guess I kind of have to say yes, because I did recommend that we watch it. Yeah, it's not one that I would recommend. It's like it has very few redeeming qualities. Yeah. It's like historically interesting. Yeah, like it, it has <laughs> it, like it's historically significant because like it's the last Sean Connery. Like I said, there's there's elements about it that are interesting, but like it's not entertaining. Like it's not. I would not say that it was a fun watch and I remember watching it for the first time and not finding it to be a fun watch. It's like, it very much, it's kind of a slog. It's very dated. It's very racist. It's very sexist. Like it it doesn't have sort of the, the charm that some of those older bond films have for me. So no, I, I don't, I don't think I would recommend it. Yeah. Apologies for putting you through it and our listeners who decided to watch along through it, but I would I would highly recommend finding a montage of all of the goofy gadgets in this movie, though, because mm-hmm. there are some some real fun ones. I didn't even mention uh, the bodysuit that has suction cups on it. That was yep. also a real winner. So you can find that. <laughs> you know, I would I would say too, like again, from a historical standpoint, like if you're a big fan of Austin Powers, you kind of need to see this one because like this is literally like the template for so much of that film. Like so. Do I recommend? I guess, like, yeah, I kind of recommend it, but not highly recommend it. Like, there are reasons to watch it, but there are so many other films in the franchise that I would recommend first. Yeah, that's fair. So, so Adam, is there another? If you were going to choose a bad Bond movie to watch, what would be what would be the bad Bond movie to watch? Like, because it's extra goofy or a fun romp or you know whatever. I mean. All of the Roger Moore ones are really fun because they're re- like they they purposely are kind of silly. I really like and I think Live and Let Die is a great Bond movie, but it's also like this weird sort of it's a it's a black exploitation movie. Let's call it what it is. It's a black exploitation movie that happens to start James Bond. So it's like this weird outlier in the franchise, but it's like really well done and like it's fun and it's got a great theme song it's got some great characters like there's some really great moments in that one but i wouldn't necessarily like i wouldn't classify that one as being like bad like it's weird and it's different but it's not bad i honestly like and it's so funny because the first time i watched it again i was a huge james bond fan as a kid the final pierce brosnan movie comes out die another day i i didn't see it in theaters i did watch it on on dvd when my dad bought it at costco and i remember coming upstairs after watching it my dad's like what do you think and i was like i think i'm done with james bond like this movie was (laughs) so stupid it was so bad and like it really did force them to course correct but going back and rewatching it after you know that they like found their footing again and like the, the franchise is okay and like daniel craig came along and saved it to go back and watch it now like it's really fun to watch if you go into it knowing like this movie is like this is the movie that has an invisible car and a villain who I'm pretty sure his name is actually Diamond Face. Amazing. Because he has diamonds <laughs> embedded in his face. Wow. Like, it's it's so stupid. It's so silly. It It's like because it was for the 40th anniversary, they're trying to like shove as many references to the other James Bond movies into it as possible. And it's just it's a mess, but like an entertaining fun mess. So I would maybe recommend that one also because it's like not so old. Like it doesn't have that like 
decidedly 60s and 70s pacing like it's from two it's from 2002 like it mm-hmm. it's modern enough or or like just watch one of the good ones like that's the other <laughs> thing too right like you could just watch you a got a lot one. to choose from yeah. yeah there's 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 a few more better better ones but we should now talk about what we're going to do next what will our next entry in the springfield googleplex be yeah, so it's my turn to pick, and uh, my pick this time is going to be the Karate Kid, specifically um, the original Karate Kid, the original not, Karate not Kid, not the one with Jaden Smith. But yeah, no, and and this, you know, this is a movie that I have a real soft spot for. This is one that I believe I saw uh, either when it came out or soon after it came out. I think it's a genuinely entertaining movie. Uh, it's something that has had the, you know, just it's been parodied to death in a million different things. Not that frequently by The Simpsons, but there is a really good parody of it, which we'll talk all about um, early on in the in the c- series. So that's fun. Yeah, I'm I'm super excited to see it. This is one of those ones that like is somehow managed to escape me growing up, and so I've never seen it before. So I'm looking forward to seeing if it holds up um, and uh, what I think of it. I kind of have uh, spoiler alert. I have a tendency to not really enjoy a lot of those movies from this era that people like are beloved. So this really could go either way. It should be fun to see where I stand, but I'm obviously like aware enough about it. Cause it's so very much again, kind of like the bond stuff. Like it's in the culture, it's in the zeitgeist. It's popular sort of like resurfaced in popularity because of Cobra Kai. So I'm excited to finally get to, to visit it for, for a change. So, well, Thank you so much for listening, and uh, we will see you around the Plex. That's a terrible way to end this. <laughs> I'm almost inclined to leave that, but... See you around the Plex, y'all. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, I'm Adam Scholes. And I'm Nate Storing. And you've been listening to the Springfield Googleplex. Have no fear on this hill.